Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the death of Henry Kissinger at the age of 100 and get an appraisal of his life and legacy, which is clearly controversial since Kissinger is being hailed as a great elder statesman by some and a war criminal by others. Joining us is Jeremy Suri, who holds the Mac Brown Distinguished Chair in Leadership in Global Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin, where he's a professor of history and public affairs. He's the co-host of the podcast, This is Democracy, and the author and editor of a number of books, including The Impossible Presidency, The Rise and Fall of America's Highest Office, Henry Kissinger and the American Century, and most recently, Civil War by Other Means, America's Long and Unfinished Fight for Democracy. Then we'll examine the Canadian connection to the foiled assassination plot on American soil by a, quote, senior field officer with Indian intelligence revealed on Wednesday in a detailed indictment in federal court in Manhattan. Joining us from Canada is Stephanie Carbon, a professor of international relations at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University in Ontario, whose research focuses on national security, international security and international law. Her most recent book is Stand on Guard, Reassessing Threats to Canada's National Security, and from 2012 to 2015, she was a national security analyst with the Government of Canada. Then finally, we'll get an assessment of why Modi's government in India took such a risk to plan to conduct a brazen act of terrorism on U.S. soil and speak with Dr. Daniel Markey, a senior advisor on South Asia at the United States Institute of Peace, and a senior fellow at the Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies Foreign Policy Institute. From 2003 to 2007, Dr. Markey was a member of the United States State Department's policy planning staff, where his work focused on U.S. strategy in South Asia, especially Pakistan and India. His books include China's Western Horizon, Beijing and the New Geopolitics of Eurasia, and No Exit from Pakistan, America's Tortured Relationship with Islamabad. And before we begin, we are asking you to help keep Background Briefing completely independent, commercial-free and corporate-free without paywalls or constant fundraising as we keep providing you with a daily briefing which is free to the public and accessible to all those who are not in a position to contribute. You can make a tax-deductible donation to our non-profit foundation, the Public Truth Media Foundation, at publictruthmedia.org or at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate. And thank you for keeping us on the air and online with this critical 2024 election year ahead in which the fate and future of American democracy itself will be decided. We are in a fight between those who no longer believe in democracy and those who have to defend it or see it die. We barely survived a coup attempt on January the 6th, and like Hitler, Trump is telling us what he plans to do. On day one, he will invoke the Insurrection Act and round up his enemies. So help us continue to seek out facts and information to awaken America's silent majority before democracy is trumped by fascism. And joining us now is Jeremy Suri, who holds the Mac Brown Distinguished Chair for Leadership in Global Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin, where he's a professor of history and public affairs. He's the co-host of the podcast, This is Democracy, and the author and editor of a number of books, including The Impossible Presidency, The Rise and Fall of America's Highest Office, Henry Kissinger and the American Century, and most recently, Civil War by Other Means, America's Long and Unfinished Fight for Democracy. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jeremy Suri. Nice to be with you again, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. Uh, and, of course, you're joining us on the day that uh, 
Henry Kissinger died at the age of 100, and uh, looking through the press coverage, it's extraordinary to see the contrast between praising the great statesman and talking about the mass murderer and war criminal. So where do you come down? You know, many people ask me that, and it's hard to give a clear answer. Many of the things he did, uh, particularly the bombing of Cambodia, the support of violence and famine in Bangladesh, the support of a coup in Chile, many of those things qualify as as war crimes. But um, if we make him a war criminal, then we would have to say the same thing about most American foreign policy leaders, because there were elements of those behaviors in almost every moment of American foreign policy. So I'm not sure I'm comfortable calling him a war criminal, but I am comfortable saying that he committed crimes and that we should learn from that going forward. Well, that's, of course, what happens with the leaders of this country. In the use of the CIA, for example, you know, when when Jimmy Carter, who was a very virtuous guy, took over, he wanted to, as as Jack Kennedy wanted, wanted to smash the CIA into a thousand pieces, but they ended up using it with a vengeance. But, of course, they don't get... History doesn't blame them, right? For, for... Well, well, that's true. But even someone like uh, President Carter, who who I think was probably one of our most um, morally self-conscious leaders, uh, you could point to um, examples in Afghanistan and elsewhere where American force was used in ways that killed innocent civilians, uh, maybe even recklessly used to kill innocent civilians. So, so it's a challenge if we're going to hold that standard to all leaders of powerful countries. But that doesn't mean we should let them off scot-free either. I think the challenge, Ian, is that power on that scale, the scale that Kissinger wielded, brings up many moral dilemmas and inevitably has um, very grave costs. So your book, Henry Kissinger and the American Century, Jeremy Surrey, goes into his really remarkable background. He barely escaped the Nazis. His family came to New York in, late in 1938. His uh, grandparents were killed by the Nazis, and his family barely escaped, and he didn't speak any English, and he went to high school in Manhattan, the public high school, and then I guess his big break, in a way, to leaving his orthodox kosher home for the first time was to join the United States Army after Pearl Harbor. And he was also involved after D-Day, and as they moved into Germany, he worked with the OSS on a project called ALSOS, which is Latin for Olive Grove, which was a sort of a a joke about Groves, the head of uh, the Manhattan (laughs) Project. So he he worked for the Manhattan Project on the project to to find what the Nazi atomic bomb was all about, because after all, we built our atomic bomb based upon the fear that the Nazis were about to build one, and it turned out the Nazis had basically had nothing. So he got introduced into the world of secrecy at a pretty young age, did he not? Yes, he did. And and I think there's an important backstory to this. This is that's very relevant. It's something I go into detail upon in my in my book. Um Kissinger was, of course, a German Jewish refugee to the United States. And uh, German Jewish refugees, particularly of that generation, were not welcomed with open arms in the United States. He lived in what was, in essence, a German Jewish ghetto uh, in Washington Heights in Manhattan. 
Uh, and and he really was not integrated into American society until he joined the army in 1942 following uh, Pearl Harbor. In the army, he was put into counterintelligence and he was put in an, in an elite role, not because people all of a sudden liked him, not even because they initially saw his talent, but because he was Jewish. The very uh, mark, the very religious background that made him a subject of prejudice gave him an advantage in the military at least in counterintelligence, because the U.S. Army was hungry to find people who understood the German language, understood German culture, but were not Nazis. And if you were Jewish, they knew you weren't a Nazi. <laughs> and that's why he's able to climb very quickly in the counterintelligence corps, uh, where he's exposed, as you said, to secret activities, to things that the average soldier would not be exposed to. And it's an, it's an irony, it seems to me, a very profound irony, that the, the target of prejudice also became a target of favoritism in this particular context. So after going to Harvard and making lots of contacts, um, both in the academic policy and business world, he gets his big break with, of course, Richard Nixon. But it's worth noting that what he did for Richard Nixon was essentially treason, he secretly worked with Madame Chiang Kai-shek and others to get the South Vietnamese to walk out of peace talks that President Johnson had arranged, hoping that that would boost his fortunes. And and this basically scuttled the peace talks. And Kissinger, on behalf of Nixon, promised the South Vietnamese, you, you get a better deal with us. Well, <laughs> not really. The war went on, what, for another two or three years. So... That's pretty troublesome, at least uh, to my mind. Well, what do well, you think? Yes, I, I agree. I, no, no, I agree with that. Uh, I think we should be, you know, uh, clear that it, it wasn't as if uh, the North Vietnamese were going to an accept accept a peace agreement with Johnson. We were not close to an end to the war in 1968 uh, because American policy was not built around withdrawing and accepting defeat. Uh, so, so he didn't prevent peace, but he did, as you say, act in disloyal, potentially illegal, and probably treasonous ways toward Lyndon Johnson, who he was working for as a consultant in that context. Um, I think Kissinger's response, other than denying that, would also be to say that, you know, this is the way politics is played. I'm not saying it's um, acceptable, but I think we, we need to put it in the context of the kinds of politics that were common at that time. Well, there's an article by Greg Grandin, and I just want to quote a little bit about it, where he talked about Kissinger harboring the two defining concepts of United States foreign policy, realism and idealism. And, of course, he's Mr. Realpolitik, as we know, uh, that realism and idealism aren't necessarily opposing values. Rather, they reinforce each other. Idealism gets us into the quagmire of the moment. Realism keeps us there while promising to get us out. And then idealism returns anew, both to justify the realism and to overcome it in the next round. And so it goes. So pretty cynical, but how, how does that strike you? Well, I, I think what, what uh, Grandin writes is, is partially true. I think what, what, what's missed in that is that uh, there were real threats to American security and interests. And Kissinger believed uh, in, in a, I think, a non-cynical way that the United States really was the best bulwark for safety and democracy and security in the world. 
Um, at times, he made cynical tactical moves. But I think to dismiss him in the way Grandin does as some kind of villainous figure is to oversimplify what is a much more complex calculus by Kissinger. One can still criticize it, but he was moved by his experiences in World War II and thereafter to believe in his own words that the United States was a savior nation and had to act as a savior nation and that whatever served the interests of the United States uh, was actually good for the world. That was not true. But that was what he believed. And even though he could act in, as we've just described, manipulative and self-serving ways, um, I think he consistently was trying to pursue what he believed was the U.S. national interest. I think the real tragedy in Kissinger, the real lesson, is that you can be pursuing the national interest and do things that are horrible and maybe undermine the very goals you have. That's the lesson we have to learn. It's not a warning against cynicism. I think it's a warning against the um, drunken, overstated use of power and the narcissism that power creates. Well, I spent some time with Henry Kissinger when I was working on a project that Brent Scowcroft started uh, the Los Alamos National Labs, where I headed up a project on the future of nuclear deterrence in terms oh. of arms control. And this was back in uh, 86, 87. And this was two years before the war came down. And after having access to a lot of the top Russians and all the top U.S. foreign policy people, I came to the conclusion that the Soviet Union was going to collapse. So I suggested that to Henry Kissinger and and both Henry Kissinger and Sam Nunn were the only two people that I talked to in the U.S. foreign policy establishment that entertained that possibility that mm-hmm. the Soviet Union could collapse. So to that extent, he seemed like he was, you know, hell of a lot smarter than most of them. Uh, <laughs> the only thing is that after talking about the possibility of the Cold War ending and nuclear weapons becoming irrelevant, he then gets starts to talk to me about... El Salvador. And, and I thought, well, why are we talking about a Latin American blood feud? Why is that more important to you than, than the end of the possible end of the Cold War? So he had that Cold War dogma in his DNA. Yeah. And I think I think that's uh, a really important point, Ian. And I didn't know you had that experience with him. I would have I uh, would have queried you more about it. Um, I, I, I think what what his life and what you just recounted tells us is how much our perceptions of the world are conditioned by the context of our times. He was a cold warrior. Of course he was a cold warrior because that's the environment he came of age in. Uh, the end of World War II, the rise of Soviet power, the obligations the United States has around the world, the fears of a nuclear war. Um, those seem very alien to my students today. They're in such a different world. Um, but he reflected his times. And that's why we study people like Kissinger, because they tell us a lot about the time. Well, interestingly enough, one of the people who've praised him and eulogized him is Vladimir Putin. And of course, fairly recently, in the last years of his life, Kissinger was, and he had been for some time, concerned about the the eastward expansion of NATO and felt that the U.S. had not considered Russia's strategic needs sufficiently in its push towards expanding NATO. So what do you make of that, that he's been getting praise from Vladimir Putin? 
Well, he was praised by both Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping, it seems to me, and that tells us more about them than it does about Kissinger. Uh, both Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping like the fact that Kissinger uh, was seen as someone who did not care very much about human rights. And of course, both Russia and China resent when American leaders and other world leaders criticize their human rights records. So by praising Kissinger, they're actually saying, you see this great man, uh, he didn't care about human rights, you shouldn't care about human rights. Uh, th th this is uh, exploitative and manipulative on their part. Uh, there are many things Kissinger did that they would not praise. Uh, Kissinger, uh, for all of the efforts to reach out to China, he still believed in defending Taiwan and was against any kind of military action uh, that the Chinese might consider undertaking toward Taiwan and believed that Taiwan should not be forcibly brought into China, even though he believed that there was one China government and one China Chinese people and two governments. And then with regard to Russia, Clint, uh, Kissinger was always opposed to Russian aggression. Uh, and um, was on record at the end of his life being opposed to what Putin was doing in Ukraine. He argued for negotiation to end the war, but uh, he never supported Putin's efforts to invade and take control of Ukraine. So they're selectively praising him for their own personal interests. Well, Jeremy Suri, I thank you very much for joining us here today. My pleasure. Thank you, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Jeremy Suri, who holds the Mac Brown Distinguished Chair for Leadership in Global Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin, where he's a professor of history and public affairs. He's the co-host of the podcast, This is Democracy, and the author and editor of a number of books, including The Impossible Presidency, The Rise and Fall of America's Highest Office, Henry Kissinger and the American Century, and most recently, Civil War by Other Means, America's Long and Unfinished Fight for Democracy. We're going to take a brief station break and back examining the Canadian connection to the foiled assassination plot on American soil by, a, quote, a senior field officer with Indian intelligence. U.S. forces give the nod. For your country Bombs and trenches all in rows Bombs and threats still ask for more Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now from Canada is Stephanie Carvin, who is Associate Professor of International Affairs and National Security, International Security, Critical Infrastructure Protection, Foreign Policy, and International Law at Carleton University in Canada, where she is a Professor of International Relations at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs. And she's a former National Security Analyst with the Canadian government. Welcome to Background Briefing, Stephanie Carvin. Thank you very much. It's good to be on the show. Well, thanks for joining us. And there's clearly connections between the assassination plot to kill a Sikh activist here on American soil and a previous assassination in British Columbia of a Sikh activist who was gunned down. And Prime Minister Trudeau went public with this information in to the Canadian Parliament uh, where he talked about credible evidence, and of course it created a, a rift, a diplomatic rift with India, with a tit-for-tat expulsion of 
intelligence officials, uh, both in Ottawa and in New Delhi. But the indictments uh, are just unbelievable, aren't they? I mean, the detail is pretty damning, isn't it? Yeah, I, it really is. Um, the fact that you know the Indian government um, may have been linked to a plot which unintentionally recruited a U.S. undercover officer um, and then paid him $100,000 to engage in a killing is uh, not good news for Delhi, to put it mildly. Um, it, it was also quite shocking to me uh, in the sense that um, not that this kind of activity is tolerated in Canada, but the United States is a country that goes a long way to protect its own citizens and uh, does not really tolerate this kind of activity at all on its territory and goes to great lengths to, to try and prevent and prosecute it. So um, for India to kind of attempt this uh, sort of activity in the United States was, was extremely bold, uh, but it goes to show that they are worried about, um, you know, what's sometimes called Sikh extremism, well, I, I often prefer to use the word Khalistani separatism, um, just kind of uh, the, 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 the individuals that India are, is concerned about. They're advocating for uh, a, a separate Khalistan, their own country, effectively. Um, but, yeah, that they see that as an existential, existential threat, which is uh, possibly why they're now engaging in targeted killing in North America. But Khalistani separatism in the Punjab itself is pretty insignificant, isn't it? So it just seems that they're really going after the diaspora in the U.S. and Canada. For what reasons? Why are they focusing on the diaspora when the internal problem in terms of India's internal security doesn't seem that dire? So, yeah, that's a really interesting question. There have been, we should say, uh, recent protests. There was something called the Farmers' Protest a, a few years ago, um, where uh, like you know farmers were upset at changes to certain agricultural policies in India, and uh, the most of the farmers that were protesting were largely Sikhs, right? Um, and that was kind of seen as a, as a threat to India's integrity. And there have been other protests. Uh, historically, uh, of course, there were. Um, uh, you know, uh, assassinations carried out by, um, you know, a Khalistani separatists in uh, India. Um, for example, um, Indira Gandhi was assassinated by her uh, Sikh bodyguards um, in retaliation for the storming of a Sikh temple in Amritsar um, back in the 1980s. So there is this kind of long-standing historical grievance that India continues to see as a threat. Um, but you're right. I think it's largely... The, the, the Sikh diaspora is seen as largely more radical outside of India than inside of India. Um, and it, like, honestly, like I uh, was formerly with the Canadian government. I've been in meetings with the Indians, and it's hard to understate just how much of a security threat they see this. Not just under uh, Modi, although I would certainly say things have clearly escalated under Modi. But the fact is that they have seen this as a longstanding threat. Um, and in particular, they see this as, as Canada as the most significant source of Khalistani separatism uh, in the world. The, there, the, there is some historical basis for this. There is, um, of course, uh, in, 19, in, in the 1980s, there was uh, Air, the Air India flight, which was uh, exploded uh, over the Pacific Ocean. It, uh, it, it was also another explosion in Tokyo, which killed two airport workers that was organized by 
um, Calisthenics separatists in Canada, uh, killed uh, well over uh, 300 people and was the most significant air disaster uh, really since, um, since uh, sorry, before 9-11. And uh, that's something India has never forgotten or really forgiven. And Canadian authorities bungled the security investigation into this. So I don't want to side here. I mean, obviously, engaging in targeted killing is wrong. But all of this to say is that, you know, since really the 1980s, there has been this uh, concern in India about uh, Sikh separatism or Palestinian separatism. And then, um, you know, the, the challenge that I think democracies have had is how to allow for the protest and dissent that a lot of these activists are, are engaging in and uh, with the concerns that India actually has, because these uh, groups, and, and I'll end on this point, have been doing things like organizing referendums on having a separate Khalistan, right? Um, there's been, uh, in the diaspora, they actually held a, a referendum. That's seen as a threat to India. And so we're in this situation, we're trying to balance their uh, security concerns with uh, you know, our principles in the West of freedom of expression, freedom of assembly, and freedom of belief. But uh, Stephanie, there's been a kind of exodus of uh, top American officials, in, starting with the CIA director who flew to India in August to talk with his counterpart in India. As, and then later that was followed by the director of national intelligence, Avril Haines, President Biden, also, and along with Secretary of uh, State Blinken, both talked to their counterparts, including apparently a private conversation that Biden had with Modi. And what's interesting about this indictment of the assassination attempt on American soil is that supposedly an Indian government employee uh, who had ordered the hit told Gupta, the guy that was supposed to carry it out, or hire somebody to carry it out, and in this case it turned out to be a DEA agent, um, that don't do it while Modi is visiting the United Nations. So it's hard not to see a connection there to Modi himself. What do you think? Uh, I don't think this would have been carried out without the permission or at least awareness of Modi, right? I mean, he is someone who has exerted great power and authority within uh, the Indian government. Uh, the indictment makes it clear that Indian diplomats um, or at least uh, figures associated with Indian intelligence uh, were very were helping to orchestrate this plot, right? Um, I, I think... You, you don't engage in a, a targeted killing program without, you know, telling the boss, as it were. So I think that there's no doubt. And this really does raise challenges, I think, uh, for the West, certainly Canada, but also the United States. Um, you know, the U.S. wants India as an ally uh, to counterbalance China. And so do other Western countries. And when this news story first broke, um, the, the reaction of Canada's allies was very muted, right? And um, I think for the reasons that, you know, uh, everyone's trying to court India right now, and India knows that. So did that embolden Mr. Modi in terms of thinking of what he could get away with? Uh, it's not clear to me if that's the case. But certainly I would be, it, it, I can't really see a way that he wasn't in some way responsible um, or at least knew that these activities were being planned and carried out in North America. 
Well, it felt a little bit like when Prime Minister Trudeau went before Parliament and said he had credible evidence. It felt a little bit like Trudeau was hung out to dry. Nobody really came to his defence, did they? No, they didn't. And I think Canada felt a little bit alone and isolated there. But while no one, while there was no robust defence of Canada or, or Justin Trudeau having had made the statement, I think that it was also quite clear that no one was denying it either. Um, you know, no one came out and said, no, we don't believe this or we, have, we don't have contradictory evidence. And eventually, uh, within about a week or so, we did see the Canadian ambassador, sorry, the American ambassador to Canada, David Cohen, uh, come on Canadian television and say, U.S. intelligence had helped Canadians uh, make their assessment that India was, in fact, responsible. Um, it's interesting that most of the statements we've seen, we've seen low-level state. Well, we, we've seen statements from kind of lower-level officials, but effectively, like before this, uh, effectively confirming Canada's side of the story. So, for example, I believe the head of the Australian Security uh, Intelligence Organization, ASIO, uh, made a statement uh, basically kind of confirming what they saw, what they saw in Canada. Um, and that's, that's, that's significant. That's important, but it is interesting to me to look who's making these statements. It is kind of these like intelligence and, uh, functionaries rather than say the political leaders themselves. And that may be to try and, uh, deescalate the situation or at least not aggravate it further for those larger geopolitical ends that, um, states are trying to achieve. So if indeed Modi is that brazen, and as it happened when he visited the White House, it was the first time he'd ever done a press conference. He just doesn't do press conferences. That's the kind of autocratic leader that he is, and he was extremely uncomfortable. But clearly behind the scenes, they're, they're, this plot was underway. As I say, they, the instigator, who from the indictment, we're not quite sure who that is, do you think it is uh, an operative of the RAW, the Indian Intelligence Service, the research and analysis wing? So the way I always try to put I mean, obviously, I haven't seen the intelligence. I don't have the proof. I've just read the indictment like everyone else. Um, but one of the things I've always tried to stress here in Canada, I mean, Canadians like to think everyone likes them. I mean, we, we like to be liked. It it's kind of goes with the territory. Um, but um, the fact is, as I mentioned earlier, uh, India, and, and not just Mr. Modi, but all Indian governments since the 1980s have viewed Canada as a threat. And they have two very good, very aggressive intelligence services, the Intelligence Bureau and the Research and Analysis Wing. And um, yeah, I mean, there, you know, there was a Canadian diplomat that was expelled. Uh, sorry, there was an, uh, an Indian diplomat expelled from Canada who is widely believed to have been the head of um the research and analysis wing. So um, that kind of speaks to who Canada believes was uh, responsible for the killing of Mr. Najjar in, in June of, of 2023. But so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I fail to see how they're not at least somehow involved in this. They may say, oh, this is a rogue agent uh, who was, you know, went beyond what they were supposed to do. But again, I, I it, it's a little bit, it's a, based on the indictment that we see, uh, from the FBI, I think that's a little bit hard to swallow at this point. Well, there's no question that Prime Minister Trudeau had a pretty dismal trip to India, did he not, at the G20, culminating by the fact that his plane broke down. So are there any indications that maybe 
they're trying to sweep this under the rug. Clearly, the United States is. Clearly, Biden is not trying to make an issue out of this and would probably, you know, with the Quad and other bilateral interests that the U.S. and Canada have with uh, India to contain China. In fact, China's been influencing and interfering in Canadian domestic politics, and this uh, Sikh assassination has taken that off the headlines and taken that focus off that problem that Canada has internally. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, I think foreign interference is an issue that we have neglected for some time because I like, and this is I'm speaking here in Canada. Um, Canadians have not seen foreign interference as a Canadian problem. They see it as a problem of other countries. They see this as an issue uh, that doesn't really relate to them. And all of a sudden, we're starting to realize that actually this is something that relates to us. That you know, people being killed in the streets or. Uh, people trying to interfere in our elections. This is this is actually something that affects us as well. Um, and it, it's you know it's unfortunate it's taken so long because the Sikh community in Canada has definitely uh, been interfered with by India for years. Uh, they've been they've been targeted in a number of ways. Uh, we've definitely seen the the you know uh, a lot of Chinese Canadians uh, say that they're being punished for many of the activities that uh, they've engaged in in terms of peaceful protest and. You know, it's about time we listen to these communities and understand what they've been going through. So, uh, you know, if there's a silver lining to this, it's that Canada is presently going to be undertaking uh, a foreign interference inquiry. So there's going to be a national inquiry into the scale of foreign interference into Canada. It will not just be about China. It will also include now states like India, Iran, Russia, um in, in may possibly even Saudi Arabia, who has also tried to kill people here in Canada. So it's really uh, an important uh, thing for us to do. But that being said, to your earlier point, I think you're right. I think both countries, Canada and the United States, are trying to not escalate the situation. I think they do see India as an important partner that they want to bring back on board rather than um, you know fully isolate and condemn. Uh, you know, pr- just simply for, for geopolitical reasons. And, you know, I'm not sure how great of an idea this actually is. But um, e- even if you look at the Canadian policy, it's been not to escalate. India expelled uh, 40 Canadian diplomats from, from their country. We did not retaliate in any way. Um, and I think, honestly, Canada has almost certainly been turning to the United States as uh, a kind of a mediator in this dispute, hoping they can kind of calm the situation because, uh, at least from a Canadian perspective, when when we made this accusation, we were certainly uh, offline with other Western countries, and that's not a comfortable position for us to be in. And for the United States, um, they're going to be having to deal with this, uh, you know, the, the attempted murder of one of its own citizens. But I agree with you that um, I think for this, again, larger ge- geopolitical uh, strategy, they're going to try and, and, and handle this quietly rather than loudly. Well, just in closing, it, there is a difference, of course, between the Indian diaspora and particularly the Sikh diaspora in Canada compared to the diaspora here in the United States, which I think is, it, it seemed, um, just based upon Modi's trip and the way that the Indian diaspora celebrated it, that Modi is actually quite popular here amongst the diaspora. So that's probably another reason why Biden is trying to sweep this under the rug, not to, not to mention that he's got his hands full with the war in Gaza. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not sure that, um, quite frankly, I'm not sure, like, like this is going to make him less popular or unpopular in, in, in the media. I mean, honestly, like, you know, commenting on Canadian foreign policy, I got quite a lot of responses from uh, Indians who were uh, very pleased to say that they thought this was a good idea and that, uh, that you know, India should uh, try and, and kill the people who are threats to its security. Um, so I'm not even sure it's that unpopular of a policy, uh, to be honest. But, um, you know, there, it is good that India has said it will investigate uh, the charges that are being put forward. I think that is a positive step. I think that's something certainly that the United States would want and Canada would welcome. And um, but it does need to be made clear that India, you know, this is this is just not something that, that can be tolerated. Um, and if we don't make that clear, if we do want to, if we are a little too eager, I think, to sweep this under the rug, I do worry that other states will, will learn that lesson and try to do the same thing. Uh, both the United States and Canada have had no shortage of attempted assassinations on their soil. Uh, this is not something we should permit. This is not something we should tolerate. And uh, even if geopolitical concerns uh, suggest that it's something that would be more conveniently dealt with in, in a quiet way. Well, Stephanie Carvin, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Hey, thank you for having me on. And again, I've been speaking with Stephanie Carvin, who's in Canada, where she is a professor of international affairs, national security, international security, critical infrastructure protection, and foreign policy international law at Carleton University, where she's a professor of international relations at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs, and she is a former national security analyst with the Canadian government. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back with an assessment of why Modi's government in India took such a risk to plan to conduct a brazen act of terrorism on U.S. soil. I'm more important in the USA than a spy for the FBI. I'm trained to meet the criminal elite and I seek out wherever evil resides. I gave on the slip, cause I'm totally hip to that modern tenor espionage. I spy. I got a bulletproof car and a secret star and a ring with x-ray eyes. Welcome back, I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24 7 at backgroundbriefing.org and joining us now is Dr. Daniel Markey, a senior advisor on South Asia at the United States Institute for Peace and a senior fellow at the Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies Foreign Policy Institute. From 2003 to 2007, Dr. Markey was a member of the United States State Department's policy planning staff where his work focused on U.S. strategy in South Asia, especially Pakistan and India, and his books include China's Western Horizon, Beijing and the New Geopolitical politics of Eurasia, and No Exit from Pakistan, America's Tortured Relationship with Islamabad. Welcome to Background Briefing, Daniel Markey. Happy to join you. Why do you think that Modi, if indeed he was behind this assassination plot, uh, was so brazen? It's just extraordinary, the, the risk that they were taking 
in doing this, and it was also somewhat clumsy. They, they accidentally hired a DEA mm-hmm. agent to kill a Sikh American activist. But given that this damning indictment indicates that the handler of this character, Gupta, who was the sort of local go-between that hired the DEA agent, the Indian intelligence officer, and that indeed he was, he's, he's described as a field officer, um, yeah. he gave specific instructions to Gupta not to uh, enact the plot during Modi's uh, visit at the White House. So in one way or another, Modi's tied into this, isn't he? Yeah, at, at some level, let me just say I'm reluctant to trace the responsibility all the way up to uh, and include the prime minister only because, um, you know, India has a, a large system, um, various, uh, you know, this is likely part of the intelligence services, possibly within the home ministry, possibly not. But uh, in any event, probably multiple steps between the people who were actually doing this work and you're right, it was conducted in what appears to have been a remarkably clumsy way and the prime minister's office. And there's every possibility um, that uh, they may have been kind of uh, going somewhat beyond their brief, uh, maybe interpreting um, a broad mandate uh, for taking actions that um, obviously were, were running a tremendous risk. Um, they do seem to have connected the dots between the fact that he had Modi had a state visit uh, in Washington, in the United States, um, and they didn't want this event to happen right around then. So they were <laughs> sophisticated enough to know that, um, but not sophisticated enough to uh, pull this off more effectively. And beyond that, not sophisticated enough to appreciate the difference between, um, you know, uh, killing what they believe a terrorist uh, in the United States as compared to, say, somewhere else, say, in India or in Pakistan, where it appears that they've done a number of these hits. So, um, yeah, uh, very risky, um, but I'm, I'm still reluctant to think that that risk was taken um, directly by the prime minister himself. So, uh, Daniel, what do you know about the RAW, the research and analysis wing of, which is their, I guess, their version of the CIA? I mean, are they that reckless? Do they have a kind of off-the-books <laughs> operation, mm-hmm. which, of course, we, we harks back to the Iran-Contra situation? Or do you think this was authorized by RAW, or do they have some kind of loose association with other off-the-book actors? Uh, Well, the short answer is we don't entirely know. Uh, They would say that they don't have such a, um, you know, assassination campaign. Uh, But there are a couple of other things that we do know. One is that there have been a number of Uh, something over six uh, different Sikh leaders who have been killed uh, inside of Pakistan. And now we have one in Canada and the attempt in the United States. So there's there's not a one-off event. Um, We also know that um, kind of one of the leading characters, the national security advisor to Prime Minister Modi, Ajit Doval, um, has a background in intelligence, more on the um, domestic than the international side, but has uh, from the start, from the time that Modi came into office until present, um, has suggested that India would take a more um, active um, approach to defending its interests overseas. So it's conceivable that they have expanded the writ um, of RAW uh, to do more of this. And then the other thing we know is that RAW, unlike the CIA, 
and unlike many other intelligence agencies, um, lacks significant legal or parliamentary oversight. That is, um, there isn't, a, as far as we know, a requirement for some kind of a legal authority to weigh in, to bless, uh, or to suggest that uh, certain activities outside of India would be strictly illegal or would be considered internationally illegal. Um, and we know that there's no requirement that the, these activities be reported, certainly not to the public, but not even to, say, a parliamentary committee, um, which would weigh in um, and uh, suggest that certain kinds of things would be uh, much more risky. So without those kinds of oversights, it's quite possible that RAW is doing a great deal more, say, than it did under previous governments. Um, but we just don't know. So there's no requirement uh, in the Indian government for... Modi to do a finding, which is the legal cover for some kind of operation? Well, a finding would be the kind of mechanism you would put into place if there were others that would then make sure, say, after the fact that there had been such a thing. Um, and because there's no uh, necessary oversight, again, not by any other parliamentary committee uh, or by any court, um, then he doesn't need to have a finding. Um, he doesn't need to make these um uh, orders plain to anyone, uh, either at the time or after the fact. But what we do know is that his party, the BJP, is very much a Hindu chauvinist, hyper-nationalist party, is it not? And previously, before he became prime minister, he was banned from coming to the United States by the State Department for his activities in Gujarat in terms of pogroms against Muslims. Yeah, we know um, that uh, his his backers and his his own background uh, very much uh, Hindu nationalist. That's absolutely right. Um, we know that uh, his party has a history of um, being engaged in uh, communal violence um, inside of India, um, but that has not necessarily meant that uh, once in office in power in New Delhi that they would take that show on the road, so to speak. Um, it hasn't been clear uh, in many ways precisely how India would operate in terms of foreign policy any differently than it had in the past. Um, Sikh separatism obviously wasn't just a, a problem under a Hindu nationalist government. This was an enormous problem under Congress Party governments and the predecessors, um, nor has uh, communal violence been just a problem under Hindu nationalists, nor has uh, India's hostility uh, toward Pakistan been just a problem. So there's like a lot of continuity here, um, but there's also the potential that what we're seeing is, is in fact something a bit new under the sun and reflects uh, possibly uh, this government's um, lack of appreciation um, or maybe even lack of uh, recognition uh, that there's anything different from conducting uh, an assassination campaign say, in Afghanistan, where there is no particular rule of law, uh, as compared to conducting it in New York City, where there is. Um, uh, in, or, uh, and to, to make those distinctions would suggest kind of an appreciation for uh, a liberal, um, legally-oriented uh, rule and, and um, kind of set of relationships with the United States and with Canada, which we in the United States have really taken on board, uh, maybe something that they simply... Uh, don't recognize at some deeper level and see only kind of in terms of hypocrisy. Um, they believe the United States conducts assassinations via drone and otherwise in other countries, and they've made that clear in their statements. And so they see this as kind of a similar counterterrorism activity. 
Um, and the fact that they got caught is obviously something they have to be upset about. But whether or not they appreciate that this is a deeper problem than that, uh, so far unclear. Well, that's the job of uh, Biden and Blinken, isn't it? To tell them, which they apparently have done. Well, they along, absolutely. Uh, along with Burns Apparently and, they've uh, told them a, a few times, right? Uh, yeah. And on, on multiple occasions in the United States, in India, um, the message um, apparently has been delivered. Uh, the question is how it will be received and uh, whether what the lesson will be that's learned, whether this would actually change this Indian government's uh, way of doing business or um, whether they simply feel like they have to go about it more carefully the next time around. But just to sort of talk about India's going back to its foundation and how it's drifting into more into, particularly under Modi, into a more Hindu nationalist chauvinistic state where it's sort of lost its secular and multicultural roots. And not as if under Indira Gandhi, it, there were also signs of departing from the foundation of Indian democracy. Am I correct in suggesting that there's a real problem in India in terms of an assault on its secular and multicultural foundation? Yeah, I think uh, what we need to appreciate is that this Indian government, uh, the BJP government, Hindu nationalists in India, um, perceive that India is really uh, at its core a Hindu nation and that its identity is as a homeland for Hindus. Um, and this is different from an, uh, an effort to embrace a secular or pluralistic approach that certainly defined Nehru um, and can be at odds with uh, democratic India, because um, though they claim that democracy has deep origins um, in, uh, in Hindu history, in Indian history, uh, that India is in fact the mother of democracy, uh, there are questions about the practice of the democracy, uh, which is ultimately rooted in um, a communal identity, that is a Hindu identity, as compared to individual rights and freedoms, which certainly in the United States we perceive as being at the, the core of uh, the practice of uh, liberal democracy. So there's a big distinction here. Um, there have been other periods, as you point out, under Indira Gandhi and so on, where India was less democratic. She had a period of emergency rule or was completely undemocratic. Um, so it's not just a distinction between democracy or not democracy, but it's a kind of a deeper shift in terms of worldview about what makes India and what is India's place in the world. What are the place of minorities, non-Hindu minorities within India? Very different from how a Nehru or a Gandhi or many of India's other secular pluralistic uh, leaders would have perceived it. But hasn't Modi shown signs of being an autocrat? I don't know how much you can compare him to yeah. other autocrats like Orban in Hungary and Erdogan in Turkey. But, for example, when he came to the White House, he, he didn't want to do a press conference. He's never done a press conference, and that's a real flag for me as a journalist. You know, if yes. government officials don't want to talk to the press, that's, that's, a, that's a problem. And he's gone after the Supreme Court. Uh, he's gone after the BBC and other journalists as well. So how do you rate him in terms of an, an autocrat? Is he up there on the scale with Orban and Erdogan? Well, he's um, he, he's getting there. I mean, I think the way to think about it would be, uh, on the one hand, India still faces uh, elections at the national and state level. So uh, part of what Modi's behavior has been 
um, has to be perceived as within the context of continuing to need to contest elections in India, win the elections and then win, win political power. But how you contest the elections and the steps that you're willing to take to um, skew the playing field, that is to control the media, um, to limit uh, investigative capabilities of uh, independent uh, groups, whether they're think tanks or academic institutions or back to the media or others, um, whether to uh, change the rules of how you campaign so that your party has access to tremendous financial resources from the private sector, which they've done, um, and so on and so forth. He's done all of these things, and it's increasingly uh, worrying, uh, certainly many Indians, but also outsiders have uh, recognized and appreciated that uh, India is facing a period of what is often described as eroding democracy and creeping authoritarianism. Um, it's not yet fully in place, and there is still the possibility for a degree of rollback and uh, contesting Modi's power, but a lot of the features have been put into place, and even in some ways more worrisome are some of the long-term changes that are being made uh, to India as a, as a nation. It's kind of lurching to the right, so to speak, or toward uh, Hindu nationalist identity. It's making minorities, and there are many, many minorities in India, including about 200 million Muslims. It's making them feel increasingly uncomfortable. And a history uh, of, that glorifies uh, a, a past, a kind of a mythological past of Hindu dominance in India and Hindu civilization is being taught in India's schools, and increasingly that will become the dominant um, narrative or understood uh, history uh, within the Indian public. Um, that will change India for the long term. So all these things are worrisome. Um, they're not quite cemented, um, but I, I think it's something we should all be watching closely, in addition to the specific points you made about, you know, Modi doesn't take press conferences. He doesn't answer those questions. He doesn't feel the need um, even early in his in his prime ministership, he kicked all the journalists off his plane. He doesn't travel with Indian media or feel the need to answer their questions. Um, that's a big problem. And, of course, the, the opposition in India is led by an Italian woman, which doesn't seem like uh, the best... <laughs> choice for taking him on well she comes she comes her family is a dynastic uh you know sort of uh linked back to uh, nehru uh to indira and now her son rahul uh, gandhi is, is sort of leading a lot of the national political charge um but in a category of of concern first of all his party is is a kind of a shadow of what it once was at the national level he's attempting to cobble together a coalition of other Indian political parties uh, to uh, serve as an effective opposition to, to Modi. Nobody really anticipates they'd be victorious, but they may slow down the process or limit the victory of the BJP. Um, but he, too, has also been harassed by legal cases and uh, for a time was kicked out of parliament uh, for having um, dared to criticize uh, Modi. Uh, there were legal cases against him for that. And he continues to face that. So, um, so it's very difficult to be in political opposition in India right now. Well, Daniel Markey, I thank you very much for joining us. I appreciate it. My pleasure. And again, Abby, speaking with Dr. Daniel Markey, who's a senior advisor on South Asia at the United States Institute for Peace 
and a senior fellow at the Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies Foreign Policy Institute. From 2003 to 2007, he was a member of the United States State Department's policy planning staff, where his work focused on U.S. strategy in South Asia, especially India and Pakistan. And his books include China's Western Horizon, Beijing and the New Geopolitics of Eurasia, and No Exit from Pakistan, America's Tortured Relationship with Islamabad. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green. To help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again on Sunday with another background briefing. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.